0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28, Matthew chapter 28. And the guys have some Bibles as they make their way to the back. If you need one, get their attention. And that Bible is marked at Matthew 28 for you. You can keep it as well. We want everybody to own a copy of God's Word. Matthew 28. Howard Schultz sat in his New York City office unable to imagine why a small company in Seattle was buying large numbers of a certain type of drip coffee maker. These were simple devices, a plastic cone set on a thermos. But this company was buying more of them than Macy's. Now, the year was 1981, and Howard was a successful salesman for a line of kitchen products and housewares. He thought he knew his market as well as anybody, but something was different about this order. What did this upstart little outfit know that he didn't? And so driven by his curiosity, he caught a cross-country flight and he had dinner with the owners. And he came away from that meeting a changed man. He couldn't stop thinking about their company. Not long after returning to New York, he called the owners and begged them to let him come work for them. After much prodding, they agreed and he moved to Seattle. And then five years later, Howard Schultz bought the company. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Starbucks. And, of course, it's not little anymore. In fact, by altering how Americans drink and think about coffee, Starbucks has redefined the $18 billion domestic coffee market. But back to the beginning. What was it about this new company that so enchanted Howard Schultz? Well, it was one thing. It was the owner's infectious enthusiasm for great coffee. In a day when Folgers and Maxwell House were the only brands most people knew, the folks at Starbucks were searching the globe for exotic, aromatic coffee beans. They were learning to roast them just so and to blend them in precise proportions and refine the brewing process to exacting standards. They simply loved good coffee. Armed with passion and a good product, this one company completely changed the way billions of people think about coffee. Now, all of that passion and energy and money and research for a commodity like coffee. So I ask you, what excites you? What motivates you to action? And once you answer those questions, then ask this, what difference will that make in eternity? How will it sound when I stand before the Lord and I say, this is what I gave my passion and my energy and my time to? Some years ago, John Piper wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life. And in it, he tells the story of an all too typical Christian couple and what's most important to them. He says, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I'll show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who, quote, took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. And now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise in their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. He says, at first when I read it, I thought it might be a joke. Kind of a spoof on the American dream. But it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life. Your one and only precious God-given life. And let the last great work of your life, before you give an account to your creator, be this. Playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord. Lord. See my shells? That is a tragedy, he says. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. And that tragic dream, really a nightmare, is what is being pursued by so many people, even professing Christian people. If we're not thinking about retirement, we're thinking about our next vacation or our next relocation or whatever next adventure will keep us excited. And this kind of thinking begins very early on. You know, friends, our young people pick up that the rest of us think that life is about these lesser things. But if you were to get excited about what matters for eternity... What would that look like? What if we were motivated to use our time and talent and treasure toward that? What would that be? What would that look like? Well, the Bible's answer may surprise you, and at first it may underwhelm you. But the answer is found in the very last words of Jesus that he spoke before he ascended back to heaven. Jesus said in what we often call the Great Commission, this beginning in verse 18 of Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now I'm going to ask you to remember one word in those three verses. It's the word baptizing. Because we'll come back to it in, in just a bit. And you'll see that it's very important for answering that question. What is it that we are supposed to be about? That word baptizing. Jesus gave us all his mission. And Jesus is going to evaluate our lives on how well we pursued the mission He gave. But when you look at what Jesus said, it's not immediately obvious obvious how it is that each of us contributes to and advances that mission. And so today I want us to see that as clearly as we can. I'm going to take time to show you the vehicle through which God has designed to carry out this mission that Christ has assigned. And then at the end of our time together, we're going to see some practical ways that you and I can give our lives to it. Now, if asked to cite a passage where Jesus gives the Great Commission, most of us would reference the one that I've just read from Matthew 28. It's the most well-known passage in the Bible about that, the Great Commission. But what many people do not realize is that the Commission is given in two other places as well. In Matthew 28, as you see in your Bible, it's the last chapter of that book. If you turn the page, you see you're to the book of Mark, Matthew 28, is the last chapter in the book of of Matthew. And the Great Commission is the last words of the book of Matthew. And that means that these words that Jesus spoke were after he had fulfilled his ministry on earth, after he had taught and done miracles and suffered and died and rose from the grave. Now, three other books in your New Testament record those same events. The next three after Matthew are Mark and Luke and John. And at the end of Luke, he records Jesus' final words also. But he gives some additional information about the mission. In the last chapter of Luke, just like we have the last chapter of Matthew, it's the last chapter of Luke, right at the end, after Jesus' life and death and resurrection, Luke records Jesus as saying this. Jesus told them, Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So this is Luke's telling of Jesus' final instructions at the very tame same time that Matthew records that famous statement of the great commission. He has the same phrase all nations here, but he also gives us some additional information. Now I ask you to remember the word baptizing from Matthew 28:19. I'm asking you to remember two things from this passage. You see them highlighted there repentance And forgiveness of sins. We will see those three things in just a bit. Baptizing, repentance, and forgiveness of sins. But then Luke goes on to record Jesus as saying in Luke chapter 24. I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So here Luke provides some additional details regarding the Great Commission. Additional details beyond that which we... Got in Matthew. he says the content of this message that's going to be preached to all nations is going to include repentance and forgiveness of sins and he says it's going to begin in the city and that city is Jerusalem and Jesus first followers in fact did as he commanded. they went to the city of Jerusalem to wait for the power to begin the mission that Jesus gave. So when you come to the fifth book of your New Testament, after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts begins with these first followers in Jerusalem. And what are they, what are they doing? They're waiting. Jesus said, wait. Now, Luke wrote the book of, of Acts. It's a, a sequel to the book of Luke. As radio broadcaster Paul Harvey used to say, he's giving the rest of the story. And it begins in chapter 1 of the book of Acts with a third restatement of the Great Commission. So in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In the first chapter of Acts, Luke picks up where he left off in the Gospel of Luke. And here he combines the information found in Matthew 28 and Luke 24. The mission will advance from Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth, beyond, to the regions beyond. Now, having seen those three references to the Great Commission and their sequence, I want to show you the way that mission is carried out through the church. And I'm doing so as part of a a mini series that I started at the beginning of of this month, at the beginning of this new year on the church called Life in the Father's House. And I'm doing so because I want us in 2016 to start with an understanding that we as Community Bible Church need to, to be the church that God intended. And that we need to do as the church what Jesus commanded us to do. Now, we've seen in previous weeks that the church is called to ministry. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that it's called to truth. Last week, we saw that the church is called to holiness. And today, the title of the message at the top of the outline that's in your program, if you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to take that out. But at the top, it says the call to mission. Today, we are going to see the mission that God has called us together to do through his church. Let's ask God to help us. Father, we ask your aid as each week, focus our minds, open our hearts. We ask you, Lord, to move on our hearts because they're so easily drawn toward lesser things. And help us to see the grandeur, help us to see the seriousness of the mission to which you have called us and its eternal implications. And the fact, Lord, that you allow us, you allow us the great privilege of being a part of this. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, in that on that outline, the first of two major points I want you to see this morning is this. There should be no missionless church. There should be no missionless church. Now, when I say mission, I'm referring to the Great Commission. I'm referring to... The three passages that we read in Matthew 28 and Luke 24 and Acts chapter one. I'm not referring only to foreign missions. Sometimes when we use the word mission, that's what automatically comes to mind for many of us. We think God's work being carried out in some other part of his his world. It includes that, certainly. But it is the Great Commission that, as we saw, begins in Jerusalem. For us, it means beginning in Trenton. And then moving outward and and beyond. So I'm not only speaking of foreign missions. I'm speaking of our mission here and then that rippling out. And I say in your outline that the reason there should be no missionless church is because first the church and the mission began together. Both the church and the mission of God began together. Now, stay with me as I try to explain as I try to explain that I've told you the scenario that Jesus gave his final instructions to his first followers and he said this is what I am leaving you here to do but I want you to go in the city and I want you to wait until you receive power from on high to begin that and so the book of Acts opens with them there in Jerusalem and they are waiting and then Acts chapter 2 tells us when the day of Pentecost fully came they were gathered together and they were waiting Now, when Luke says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, when the day of Pentecost fully came, he's giving us a time marker. He's giving us an idea about how long they, approximately how long they've been there. So how long have they, have they been there? Well, Pentecost uh, was a feast from the first part of your Bible, a feast that took place 50 days after Passover. That's why it's called Pentecost 50. It took place 50 days after Passover. Now, you'll remember that Jesus died right around Passover. And he was in the grave for three days. So that accounts for three of these 50 days. What some of you may not know is that for 40 days, Jesus showed himself alive after he raised rose from the grave. In fact, Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us that, that he showed himself for 40 days. So you have 43 of those 50 days accounted for they have been waiting in jerusalem for about for about a week and at the beginning of this new entity that we're going to see in a moment called the church in acts chapter 2 we also have the beginning of the great commission now how do i know that well it's because if you were to read through acts chapter 2 in acts chapter 2 it tells us that they were gathered on the day, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were gathered, and then the Holy Spirit, as Jesus had promised, came, came upon them. They were all bewildered and confused about what was happening, the, and, and so Peter rose to explain. Beginning in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches a sermon explaining what has transpired with Jesus, and how he was, how he was murdered, but how God raised him from the dead. And now this is the beginning of the mission that he has assigned to us. And that goes all the way through verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. And when you come to verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, here's what the Bible says. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And in response to that, in this next verse, Peter pulls together. The three elements that I asked you to remember from Matthew 28 and Luke 24. Here's what he says. Peter replied, repent. We've seen that somewhere, haven't we? Luke said that the content of this preaching that's going to go to all nations is going to be repentance. And Peter says, repent. And then he says, and be baptized. We've seen that, haven't we? From Matthew 28. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for thee, and then notice forgiveness of sins. Again, Luke had told us this preaching is going to be repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name in Christ's name to all nations. So here in this one verse, you have very clearly the beginning of the great commission. Now, just as a quick aside, some of you are looking at that verse and right now you're going, really, you get baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? You have to get baptized for your sins to be forgiven. So let me just explain that quickly. That the Greek preposition ace that's translated for in that verse, it can be used as we use the word for in English to mean in order to or because of. So if I say, go to the store for bread, I mean, go to the store in order to get bread. That's one way we use the word for. But if we say, Ken Rapp is in jail for a crime he committed. Ken, not everybody's laughing. They think that's a real possibility. (laughs) Ken Rap is in jail for a crime he committed. We're using for to mean because of, not in order to. That is, he's not in jail in order to commit a crime. But he's there because of something that he's already done. And likewise, we're not baptized in order to get forgiveness of sins, but because we have already been forgiven. Baptism does not bring forgiveness. It's an act on the part of those who have been forgiven. All right, it's an aside Now focus on what I was saying. And that is the Great Commission. Repentance, forgiveness of sins, baptism began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And something else began at that time as well. Not only did the Great Commission begin, but something else began at at exactly the same time. That something else is the church. Prior to Acts chapter 2 and the beginning of the Great Commission... The church did not exist, but the church began at the same time. Now, how do I know this? Again, stay with me. But the Bible tells us that the body of Christ, the church, is formed by something called spirit baptism. We see that in First Corinthians chapter 12. We were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, the church. Now, the very first time that spirit baptism occurred was in Acts chapter 2. The very first time this phenomenon that forms the body of Christ, the church, happened was on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came. And again, how do I know that? Because Acts chapter 1 records before the day of Pentecost, records Jesus as saying this. In a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So it hasn't happened yet, but Jesus says that's that's coming soon. And indeed, in Acts chapter 2, it did. When the Great Commission started. And I am telling you, the church started as well. And then later, after Jesus says, in a few days, you will be baptized with the spirit. And then we see that baptism of the spirit in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost and the beginning of the Great Commission. Now, also the beginning of the church. And after that has happened, then the gospel, as we're going to see in a bit, is, is spread beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the then ends of the earth. And as that spread occurs, not only are Jews coming to Christ, but now Gentiles are coming to Christ as well. And one such instance occurs in Acts chapter 10 with a man named Cornelius. And Peter was the one who preached to him. And in Acts chapter 11, Peter is explaining this phenomenon of the gospel being given to Gentiles and not just just to, to Jews. And he says this in Acts chapter 11. The Holy Spirit came on them. As he had come on us at the beginning. You see that? At the beginning. And then I remembered what the Lord had said. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So between Acts chapter 1, where we have Jesus recorded as saying, you will in a few days be baptized. And Acts chapter 11, where Peter says there was a beginning in the past. In between is Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost. The church began at the same time as the Great Commission. So I say in your outline, they began together. But not only did they begin together, but I say in your outline, the church and the mission go forward together. The church and the mission both began together, but they also now, beginning in Acts chapter 2, they move forward together. And you don't have the one without the other. Now remember... Luke writes in Acts chapter 1, as he begins to tell the rest of the story, he recounts the words, the final words of Jesus before he ascends to heaven. And he recounts them this way. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that verse marks the outline then for the book of Acts. So the 28 chapters of the book of Acts then document the spread of the mission through the church beginning in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I'm just quickly going to show you a number of verses through the book of Acts that do that. There are seven places where Luke just gives a sort of progress report, a status report on how this thing is going, how it's moving out from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and moving outward. Seven progress reports. The first one's in Acts chapter 2. At the very beginning, it says the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And then the church in Jerusalem continues to grow. It grows. It's 3000 on the first day. Acts chapter two tells us it becomes many more thousands after that. And by the time you come to Acts chapter six, verse one says in those days, the number of disciples was still growing. And then verse seven of chapter six says the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. So we're still in Jerusalem. But the church is expanding in Jerusalem. But remember, it's going to go to Judea and Samaria. We find a a persecution that arises in Acts chapter 7, beginning with the martyrdom of, of Stephen. And as a result of that, the Christians are spread out from the city of Jerusalem to the regions beyond. And here's what chapter 9 and verse 31 says. The church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria increased in numbers. So it moves out now from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And then the gospel is given to to Gentiles. And it begins to go into Gentile cities. And through the rest of the book of Acts, we begin to see that progress. Chapter 12, the word of God continued to spread and flourish. In chapter 16, the churches were strengthened in faith and they grew daily in numbers. In chapter 19, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Until the seventh and final of these progress reports is the last two verses of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28. And we find the great apostle Paul, who has been this missionary church planter. The book of Acts records his journeys, his hardships. But we find him at the end of the book of Acts... In the capital of the empire in Rome. And it ends this way. For two years. Paul stayed in Rome. And he proclaimed the kingdom of God. And he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we are in what some have called Acts 29. Because the progress is to continue. Jesus said in Matthew 28 and verse 20. Surely I am with you always. Even to the very, you remember, end of the age. So, this goes forward and continues this progress to the end of the age. Now, friends, we are to be a part of that. So, there should be no missionless church. The church is about the mission. They began together, they go forward together. But, secondly, in your outline, there should not only be no missionless church, there should be no churchless mission. No churchless mission. Mission is church centered. The mission that God has called us to is to be a part of his church and to see his church replicated in his world. Now, there are all kinds of good things for us to be involved in. All kinds of humanitarian efforts that we could be involved in. But there is none, none, zero, nada, that are more important or as important as the mission of God's church. There should be no churchless mission. Now, why? I say in your outline, the church is the source of mission. We see this in the book of Acts. As this progress moves forward out from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, then to the Gentiles carried out primarily through the apostle Paul. And we see in Acts chapter 13, the sending of Paul and his associate Barnabas. Here's what the Bible says. The church at Antioch placed their hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them off. So Paul and Barnabas are sent out by the church. The source of their mission is the church. They lay hands on them. They commission them to carry this out. We've done the same kind of thing here. We've had people go out to China. We've laid hands on them and we've commissioned them for that work. When we lay hands on a man for uh, gospel ministry, pastoral ministry, we are, as a church, commissioning that one to carry out and lead gospel ministry. The church is the source of mission. It's not only the source of mission, in your outline I say it's the means as well. It's the source and the means. Paul and Barnabas were sent by the church and they were accountable to the church. In fact, at the end of Acts chapter 14, after Paul and Barnabas have gone out, they visited a number of cities, they planted churches in those cities. And this is what the Bible says at the end of Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas gathered the church together and they reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. He goes, they go back to the church at Antioch. And that's where they give this report. The church that sent them, they go back to and they give this accountability report. And the church supports that mission with prayer and also monetarily that's why you find statements like this by the great apostle in places like Philippians 4. I have received the gifts that you, the Philippian church, have sent. Supporting his work. In fact, in chapter 1 and verse 5 of Philippians, he says, I thank God whenever I remember you, Philippians, for your, and here's a quote, your partnership in the gospel. We are partners in this enterprise called Great Commission Incorporated. The church is the source of mission. It's the means of mission. And thirdly, it's the end of mission. Biblical mission and the great commission. Goes forward. From the church supported by the church. And the end game is to be the establishment of the church. New churches. And so as. As. Paul and his associates went out and they gained converts to Christ. The clear objective was the establishment of new local churches. So after they were sent out at the beginning of Acts chapter 13 and they go to several cities, they then on their way back to the sending church to report to them, they stop back in those cities. And here's what it says. Paul and Barnabas preached the good news in Derby and they won a large number of disciples and then they returned. These are cities that they hit on the way. On the way out, now they're going back. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And they appointed elders for them. Now notice this, in each church. (laughs) You see, when they started those cities, there were no churches. But when they left, there were. And when they came back through, they appointed leadership for those churches. So the end game was churches. And we see that on their second missionary journey. Same pattern in Acts chapter 16 through 18. So what does all that mean to you? What's all that mean to us? There should be no missionless church. There should be no church-less mission. They started together. They go forward together. What does that mean for you, for me? Well, author and pastor Joshua Harris suggests that we ask three questions in light of these these truths. We ask these questions to determine where our priorities are as it relates to God's mission through his church. So here's the first. Do I view my gifts and abilities as resources to serve my church? Do I view my gifts and abilities as resources to serve my church? You know, the Bible has much to say. About our gifts. And from whom they came and for what purpose they were given. One such place is in Ephesians chapter 4. The Bible says from him Christ. The whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows. And builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As each part does its work. Now Joshua Harris goes on to explain. Give answers to these Questions that he asks. The analogy of the church to a human body is not just to be memorable. It's part of God's word, and so it's not just memorable, it's accurate. And we each play a part, and each part is different, and each part is far less than the whole. Now, if we're honest, it's humbling to merely be a part. (laughs) Most of us want to be the part. But God's amazing plan for the church is not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ. And wanting to be the part is idolatry. And it reveals a passion for our own glory rather than God's. Having passion for the church means that we're happy and even excited to be a part of what God is doing. And where is it that our gifts and abilities come from anyway? At one point in the first part of your Bible, God spoke to Moses about, quote, all the skilled men to whom I have given wisdom in such matters. And later in your New Testament, the Bible asks. Who makes you different from anyone else? Now, get this next question. What do you have? That you did not receive. You know what the answer to that is? Nothing. Not a thing. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? All of our skills, the wisdom to use them as well, even the desire and the opportunity to improve and to refine them, it all comes from God. And he'll use many things along the way to increase our abilities through relationships, through through training, through our profession, through trials and opportunities. But they're all subject to him and they rest firmly in his sovereign hands. And God gives us gifts and abilities and he develops them and then he invites us to come and play a part in the only institution that is central to the work that he's doing in his world. The only institution that is eternal. God wants you to walk into your church, look around and say, how can I serve in this church with the skills that God has given me? The idea is for us to not wait for somebody in the church to ask to serve. Be eager to play your divinely ordained part. We should not practice a false humility where we shelve our gifts when it comes to serving the church. Do you see an area in which you can improve? Don't assume somebody else will take care of it. Offer to help. Let me just say now, some of you may be getting this for the first time. Wow, is that what I'm called to do? That's what's going to last for eternity. That's where the action is. That's what I'm supposed to be a part of. If that's the case... For you, Listen, there's a part for you to play. And so how do you get started? Here's, the, here's how to get started. Today, stop by the information center desk. Give your name and contact information and say, I want to play a part. You will hear from us this week. So the first question is, do I view my gifts and abilities as resources to serve my church? Here's the next one. Am I consistently aware of how much I need the church? Am I consistently aware of how much I need the church? No matter how much you serve in your church, whatever role you may play, remember this, God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He'd have no difficulty bringing people into our church who far excel any of us in gifting and in maturity. So it's not that the church needs us so much, but that we need the church think about it this way at this moment you're probably not passionate about breathing in fact you don't even think about breathing unless you have a breathing problem and even though it's necessary to physical life we usually take it for granted but should that ability to breathe be taken away say if you're somehow trapped underwater you would in a matter of seconds get passionate about breathing And similarly, scripture and experience make clear that the local church is absolutely necessary to our spiritual life. But unless we consistently remind ourselves how much we need the church, we'll take it for granted. Listen, friends. I said a few weeks ago that the way we talk about the church reveals what we understand about the church. Sometimes we refer to the church as the building. You remember me saying that? So we don't call this place the church. The place is not the church. The people are the church. So we call it the ministry center. Sometimes people send me emails and they say, I'll meet you at the church. And I always write back and go, no, you won't. And then I always correct them with a little smile over time. We'll get it. But, you know, our language betrays us when we say things like this, too. We say, where do you go to church? And for us, church is just the place where I attend. Now, attendance, hey, I'm I'm glad everybody's in attendance. The Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. It's a good thing. It's only one part of what the church does, is assembling and attending. The church is a group of people that are using their gifts together, and together they are sharpening one another and helping one another, and we need one another. The church is not just a chair where you sit on Sunday morning. And in the closing chapters of the book of Ephesians, it addresses the new way of living that Christians have been called to embrace. Notice how it expresses God's heart for the community of believers living out their lives together. Ephesians 5 says, Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed. Now notice, among you, among you all, in the community of the redeemed, And then just a few verses later in that same chapter, it says this. We speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When we come together, when we do come together, is not just an individualistic exercise, but rather we are here to sharpen one another, to encourage one another. These passages are not addressing isolated individuals. These and many other phrases speak of a faith in which we live side by side. We're not supposed to be pursuing our spiritual growth in Christ as free agents who meet together now. And then we just because we like the teaching or we like the worship. Rather, the local church is a community and we're to look out for and communicate richly with one another. To glorify God, we must acknowledge that we're sinners who need help. Sinful people who need each other even to see our own sinfulness accurately. And so it is not an individualistic exercise. And not, God is not glorified, friends, in our individual strength. He's chosen to reveal his glory through churches that are full of sinful, weak, dependent people who are building each other up, walking in God's grace, picking one, one another up when we stumble, and locking arms in the strength of the Holy Spirit. So here's the third question. The first is, do I view my gifts and abilities as resources to serve my church? The second, am I consistently aware of how much I need it? And thirdly and lastly, are you building your life around the church or the church around your life? Are you building your life around the church or the church around your life? Many people evaluate a church by asking things like, how does this church meet my needs? So parents might put it this way. We've got a five-year-old and a teen so an exciting youth group and a great preschool program are simply necessities. Excellent marriage retreats but would be important too. Can any church that doesn't offer these things really be the right place for us to pour our lives into? When you think about that approach, friends, it's like we're comparing used cars. <laughs> now, it's not that these things should be irrelevant to evaluating a church. And by the way, we have great all of those things if you're evaluating But if that's where your thinking begins, if that's where it starts, then you've imported a consumer mentality into your relationship with God. You've gotten it backwards. The place to start is to position yourself before God as a needy servant, not as a consumer with a checklist of desires. And teens and adults face the same basic challenge. We just have a tendency to define our needs in a different but still unbiblical way. If you, if you met someone who was squandering his life away by partying, living for the moment, making decisions based on what's going to be fun for the next month, you would say, my friend, you're a fool. And yet some of us do the same thing, but since we do it in contexts that involve other Christians, we think it's okay. And we spend these key years of our lives running after fleeting, exciting spiritual highlights, concerts and festivals, coffee houses, conferences, missions, trips, outreaches, and so on. These can be good in and of themselves, and they can definitely have a place. But if they take the place of involvement in a local church, they are not healthy, good, or biblical. Stay with me, I'm almost finished. It comes down to what it is you place at the center of your life. Because lots of things are important. My friends, our relationship with God must be at the center, and the New Testament could not be more clear that the local church is at the heart of God's plan for his people. Don't push God's plan for the church on the outskirts of your life with your needs at the center. God wants the church and its mission to be at the center. And remember Howard Schultz, Starbucks guy? In a book about his experience with Starbucks, he wrote this. Care more than others think wise. Risk more than others think safe. Dream more than others think practical. Expect more than others think possible. And that's all about building a business for coffee. That should challenge us, shouldn't it? Because we're about business, the father's business in the father's house that will last forever. And so I ask, friends, can we abandon ourselves to that same degree for God's eternal purpose through his church? By God's grace, through his Holy Spirit, indeed, we can. After all, we are called and enabled to imitate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he is far more passionate about building the church than anyone has ever been about building a corporate empire. So use your gifts to serve the church. Be eager to be a part of it. Embrace your need for the church. Build your life around that and imitate Christ who the Bible says this of. Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her. Your take-home truth is this. The church is central to the Great Commission. The church is central to the Great Commission. I leave you with that instruction I gave earlier. If you don't know how to get involved, you don't know what to do, stop at the desk. Just say, I want to get involved. I want to know what to do. Give your name and contact information. We'll get a hold of you. But in 2016, we want the church to be a church that's called to ministry, that's called to truth, that's called to holiness, and the church is called to mission. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us the sacred time together. To look at this topic that is of such importance to you that Christ said, I will build my church. He promises to build his church. And he died for his church. Gave himself up for her. And he is at work in his church to present her as a a holy bride. Without spot or blemish. Oh, thank you, Lord, for letting me be part of the church. And letting me and letting us be a part of the eternal work that's taking place in time in your world right now. Oh, Lord God. I pray that no one here will squander their life on lesser things. Help us to see that the church is not just a place I go to. The church might be a place that I attend. The mission is my life and the mission takes place through your church. Help us to see it for what it is. Your design for your world and for your people. And help us, Lord, to be motivated by that. Lord, we are motivated by so many lesser things. Your spirit move our hearts so that in this year of 2016 and then beyond, this is a place that is an epicenter church where your work is taking place in our Jerusalem, but then it is rippling out to the the regions beyond as not only does our church grow here, but we're able to be a sending church, sending those who have a passion to see souls come to you and be built up in you and into your church. As a result of all of this, may you be glorified, yes, in our individual lives, but then in the corporate life of your church. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.